Welcome to The Five Nine, the official podcast of the Fierce Telecom and Technology Group. Join us each week for the latest insights on 5G, millimeter wave, AI, electronics, sensors, networking, infrastructure, and more in the communications and technology space. All right, welcome everyone to another week and another year, in fact, here of the Five Nine podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alejandro Pinedo from the Fierce Telecom team. And we're going to start the year with two great guests with uh, a, a very important discussion on where we sit today in broadband. There's a lot going on in that space. Uh, for those of you that, of course, follow Fierce Telecom, you'll have seen a lot of coverage and it's a big year ahead. So this should set us up nicely for that discussion. I'm joined, of course, by David Strauss, Principal of Broadband Success Partners, and Jay Rolls, Chief Technology Officer at Broadband Success Partners. David and Jay, welcome to the Five Nine. Thanks for uh, being with us today. Thanks, Alejandro. Appreciate it. Excellent. So let me allow you to give a, a brief introduction here to Broadband Success Partners. David, we had the, the good fortune of meeting at an event last uh, year at U.S. Broadband Summit. We had uh, quite uh, brilliant conversations, which I think is really what led, uh, led us here. But I'd love for you to be able to speak to our audience here and give a brief introduction to yourselves and also what you do at Broadband Success Partners. Very good. Thanks. Jack Burton, who is a former Altice executive, and I, having come out of the cable industry as well, started Broadband Success Partners in late 2017, and we are now the leading technical advisor in the M&A due diligence uh, arena, and so much so that through the end of last year, we had completed 82 projects of that kind, evaluating, assessing networks both technically and from an operations perspective. And in fact, 27 of the 82 were completed last year. We support both buy side as well as sell side, predominantly private equity firms, infra funds and pension funds as well. And my background, as I mentioned a moment ago, I come out of both the mobile and cable space. Jay, who is with me today, comes from, joined us, I should say, about two, two and a half years ago. He was the chief technology officer at Charter Communications, and prior to that, SVP of engineering at Cox Communications. And our firm now has seven people, but Alejandro, Jay and I are thrilled to be here today. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And and what a great, great experience we have on hand today. And, and let me bring Jay into the conversation here. I want to set the scene a little bit for our listeners and, and get a, a broad idea of where we are today in terms of broadband in the United States. Are we, from a, a perspective of access, technology, its affordability, the type of service and speeds that folks are getting? I know it's a huge question, Jay, but could you set the scene a little bit and, and tell us where we are today? Sure. Happy to, and thanks for having us. In the U.S. or in North America, it continues to be a fast-moving space. I remember the MSOs where the cable operators were facing fiber competition, I think two years ago, it was something in the high 30s. So I imagine that's in the low 40s by now. So I would say we're probably over the 40% point of fiber overbuild in the U.S., but that continues at a pretty intense pace. And you have a lot of fiber builders out there, a lot of small, medium companies doing that. But of course, you have AT&T and you have other large frontier, a couple others that are building out at a pretty big pace. And that continues. And those are mostly 
their greenfield or brownfield. If you're a copper provider and you're overbuilding your DSL network, you might call that brownfield, but I, in, in many respects, that's a greenfield nonetheless. And I would say on the fiber side, the big change, we're hitting that junction where people are starting to leave GPON 1 or 2.5 gig behind and jump onto the XGS PON 10 gig platform. That's pretty much becoming the norm now that we see in deployments. That said, the MSOs are obviously not resting on their laurels, and there has been so much written about the rollout of DOCSIS 4.0 and a lot of things that I was still working on when back when I left Charter in 2019. I think the big aha that's happened here in the last six months is that that DOCSIS 4.0 is a pretty pretty challenging step up in things that you have to do and the kind of cost that you incur. And I think people are realizing that there are ways of leveraging today's DOCSIS 3.1 in a smart and, and more cost-efficient way. And so I think we're going to see a pretty big delay in DOCSIS 4.0, only because 3.1 will be exploited fully before that step up is, is necessary. And we could do a whole podcast just on that topic. It's, there's a lot of things to dive in there, mid-splits, high-splits, et cetera. Uh, 1.8, 1.2 gigahertz plant. Then on the copper side, the the DSL providers are really scrambling to reinvent themselves. There's a lot of small and medium-sized ILEC telephone companies in the U.S. We see these from time to time, and they are feverishly looking for how to build and change to, to a fiber infrastructure. I would say no matter what legacy platform someone starts with. One thing we've noticed, if you are jumping to fiber from an old platform, let's say it's HFC, let's say it's copper, it's hard to make a full transition from one network to the other. And and it's hard to turn off your old network. It's hard to go disrupt all your customers and say, hey, it's time we got to change how we're delivering the, the services to your home. And that always presents a a moment in time when the, the customer may, who may be happy, says, let me reevaluate my broadband needs at home. So that's, that's what I would uh, do a broad brush. That's my, I sort of summarize the situation there. That makes a lot of sense. And, and also from the point of view of access, there's obviously a lot of investment going on in reaching not spots and, and underserved areas. That comes with a significant need for investment, of course. And, and that's something that we've talked about a lot and, and heard of both at a private and, and public uh, funding sources. So, David, if I could ask you to build on that, on the comments that Jay was making around network upgrades and everything that's going on from a technical, but also from a, a geographical point of view, where do you see funding coming in to fund that effort to bridge the digital divide? Are you seeing more interest from private equity? Of course, we you mentioned at the top there there's different folks that you that you work with in terms of finding investment opportunities or what's your take on on the funding bit it's an interesting time in in the states with the bead program for 42 billion dollars that is flowing to the states and then to service providers so uh, that's going to change the landscape considerably in terms of serving or wiring if you will underserved and, and non-served areas. And I think the fact that these service providers, when they submit their 
applications need to match them to the tune of 25% or greater with additional funding, where is that funding coming from? So it's, I think, fair to say that the private sector is going to have to play a very active role in that regard, because without government subsidies, building a fiber network into a very rural, sparsely populated area is not an easy thing to do, not an easy case to make. We typically say if the density is below 30 homes per mile, some might say below 50, that building fiber, the economics just do not work. Now that you have, and there have been, of course, other programs, but one could argue that BEAD is a bit of a tsunami in terms of the impact it's going to have. We, we don't really know just yet, right? It's still early innings, but there's no doubt uh, that the private sources will, will play an active role. And there are other technologies. Bridging the digital divide doesn't necessarily mean that it strictly has to be fiber, right? We have worked on fixed wireless opportunities in rural areas for PE firms, for infra funds, and that's a very viable technology. It's, it doesn't necessarily have the same performance as fiber, however, but to get to that very remote area, fixed wireless, and then some would even argue satellite. Uh, for particularly remote areas. And David, that that brings up a good point, which is I really glossed over that. (laughs) I apologize. I I totally forgot to mention wireless in my intro remarks. And I think that's two flavors. That's the fixed wireless, purpose-built broadband wireless that David's mentioning there. And then, of course, we have one you could call the elephant in the room, which is the mobile operators getting into the broadband business and getting a significant couple of percentage points of penetration here in the last couple of years And that is one to watch very closely because one of the debates we see a lot and I'm debate with myself is how much is enough? How much broadband do people really need? What speeds are going to be sufficient here over the next five or 10 years? And that's, I think, something to watch closely. And I think, Jay, the the point you make there, it's uh, making me think a little bit about what it's like to be one of these state broadband officers at the moment. And, And of course, these their plans have been submitted to the NTIA. Now we're going through to the next stage in a way of them evaluating the subgrant applications, right? To, to actually think about all the different options on the table and, and where those grant funds are going to be allocated. David, you and your team have vast experience as network operators. Now you're working as due diligence experts. So if I could ask you to think about, think as a state broadband officer or, or as their teams, do they need to think about specifically when they're evaluating technically those subgrant applications as in the coming weeks and months? Thanks for that question, Alejandro. I, we have, as a firm, spoken to about a dozen different states over the past year and a half. And it's very interesting because they're small offices. In some cases, they're new offices. And these are folks that don't necessarily come with a broadband background. And we've been advising at this point if you will, informally about some of the things that they they need to pay attention to. And it's really interesting in that some states are planning to do a relatively rigorous upfront assessment of the subgrant applications from a technical perspective as well, the teams, and others are banking more on achieving certain milestones and in a sense, auditing the networks as they're up and running. But We clearly were very biased, given our backgrounds, given our experience and our expertise, that there needs to be a very 
thorough, we believe, a very thorough assessment of these plans. And they can't just, in a sense, be paper exercises. And, and so by that, for example, when they're putting their detailed designs together, ensuring that the right network architecture is being planned or proposed, that the CapEx assumptions are valid. But when I say it, sh- it can't strictly be a paper plan, what I mean by that is the area of make ready. So when it comes to an aerial plant, and you will hear this from others, make ready is the most challenging area in terms of getting the permits and the permissions and the access to the poles. And so we've talked to a number of states and made it very clear that as they're assessing these applications, they have to ensure that the subgrant applicant has actually done an assessment, not just through Google Maps, if you will, but actually walked the potential plant and gotten a very good sampling of the condition of the poles themselves. Because how many poles are needed? Is there availability on the poles? What is the relationship with the local utility, who in many cases owns those poles? Many of these poles are 45, 50 years old or older, could be rotting inside, and so on and so forth. Is there enough clearance, as I mentioned as well? So the whole area of aerial construction and the make-ready challenges cannot be underestimated. It has to be, has to be evaluated and assessed accurately because what might happen if that's not done is you've got a service provider building plant and building at a greater cost than they originally anticipated. Where are they going to get that additional funding from? I don't believe the states are going to come back and give them additional funds for that purpose. So make ready is a critical area. It's not the only area, but it is a critical area that needs to needs a high level of attention and scrutiny. I'll add just two more things, David. First of all, I would say it's fair to observe that we sense a bias towards fiber from the states versus fixed wireless. I think they know in certain scenarios, fixed wireless may be the only thing that could be affordable, but I think there's definitely a bias for fiber. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out state by state. And then complete unknown, I don't have a feel for this yet, but I wonder if the states are going to really try to encourage open access networks from these fiber providers. And some fiber builders may embrace that model, but some will definitely resist it. And I don't know if that's going to be a factor as decisions are being made along the way. Yeah, that's the open access network discussion and, and make ready. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to turn to you then, Jay to use also your experience in in industry and and now with the privileged experience of playing a consultancy role where you get to to talk to a lot of folks and see what what they're up to are you seeing any shortfalls or any common issues that um, that these operating networks and and broadband players might be about to encounter or something that they're not doing Quite well. And on the other hand, any success to, to highlight? I guess what I'm getting at is, are we on the right track in terms of, as an industry, to address these issues, to make future-proof networks, or are we focusing on the wrong things? Putting that through the filter of the fiber providers first, or the fiber builders, I should say, it's all about the construction. It's just such, it's the lion's share of the cost. And even the equipment gets dwarfed by the labor 
and the actual physical construction costs. And so that becomes primary, that aerial versus underground. Do you appreciate the challenges of that of doing aerial that David just mentioned with make ready and pole attachments? Do you understand what underground entails? Are you going to build underground in, in Arizona? Oh, are you aware of the specific challenges of Arizona or West Virginia underground builds? They exist. So I, I think that's one of the primary factors. I also think that some people might overthink the infrastructure, actually. It's been very interesting to see how these fiber networks are, are built. We were working in one major metro recently. It was a new entrant. And their infrastructure, other than the obviously the outside plant, the fiber plant itself, was in essence neighborhood cabinets, half-height neighborhood cabinets, and one rack of equipment in a data center in the downtown. That's it. No buildings, no huts, no diesel generators, nothing like that. And very lightweight. And I think incumbents that are used to working with heavier infrastructure, buildings, et cetera, might actually overthink what is entailed to roll out one of these fiber networks. You need battery backup. You need some essential things. You need out-of-band access for your equipment. You need external jack-in points for mobile portable gener power generators for power. You need some things when you do that, but it's not that complex. And then lastly, I might say, some operators are leveraging the cloud in a more savvy way than others. And I think that's where the world's headed. And to the degree people are trying to run their networks off of more bulkier, legacy, on-prem hosted OSS BSS systems, that, that could be a mistake because that's that's just not how people are doing it anymore. And we've, saw, we've seen a couple operators that run almost completely in the cloud. It's very interesting to observe. Absolutely. So we're just about to run out of, out of time here. But before we, we wrap up, I, I did want to see how much I could get out of David on this one, because I know it's a topic that you are very heavily involved in, but you won't be able to say too much, especially on, on specifics. I, I wanted to think broadly about the outlook of the industry. You, you mentioned that it's a, it's almost like a tsunami moment with BEAT funding. There's a lot going on the tech front as well. Do you then expect to see more M&A activity in broadband? And are there any trends that perhaps you could signal to? Now, I know that you won't be able to answer fully, but let's see what we can get out of you. Sure. Oh, Alejandro, happy to. Now, obviously, BEAT is a forcing function, if you will, with regards to increased M&A activity. From where we sit, reflecting on the past 12 months or so, 2023 was not, I wouldn't say quiet, but was at a lower level, if you will, until we hit August. And then from mid-August onwards, business picked up considerably for us and hasn't slowed down. If anything, it's increased even further. And now that's from where we sit. So to the extent that we have a pretty broad view of what's going on specifically as it relates to wired networks, fixed wireless, that, that may be demonstrative, if you will, of what's going on in the broader market. Clearly, the macroeconomic headwinds in the states with high inflation rates did thwart activity, did cause some to say on the sideline. And, and so the prospect of lower interest rates certainly helps. The frothy evaluations or valuations 
uh, have caused some to sit on the sideline as well. But what's interesting and what we've seen is increased activity from lenders, right? So you have a, a PE firm, for example, that had hired us to do a tech DD on an asset a year and a half ago, has come back to us now as the owner of that network and has asked us to update that report and get it out into the markets to, to prospective lenders. So more and more of that is happening. We're actually also seeing more activity on the part of sell side, service providers seeking to grow their networks, expand their networks, upgrade their networks, are seeking us to, to do a due diligence on their behalf. So I think what we're seeing from where we sit is an indication of a pretty robust 2024. Excellent. Look forward to seeing how that develops then. Before we, we wrap up here, we've got about a, a minute to roll. So let me turn it back to both of you for one final thought. If our listeners left this podcast with one key message from both of you, what would you like that to be? Let's start with you, Jay. Sure. The thing that I think is fun about our little firm is that we are, we're not career consultants. We're all former practitioners. We're all, we all operated networks. And as a former MSO guy, I would say this. I am struck by these fiber networks, how operationally simple they are compared to HFC networks. They are simple to run, simple to maintain, and I think that has very long term that has got to have some ramifications on the cost to run these networks, customer satisfactions because of less outages, higher performance. That is the one thing that that I've really noticed over the last year and a half working so intensely with the, the fiber space. Brilliant. So don't overthink it is a key message for you. David, what about you before we, we wrap up here? Yeah, I would say from an investor's perspective that it is, as I noted earlier, the valuations can be higher on the fiber front. There are assets out there, copper assets, old telephone companies as well, coax acts out there as well, that are worthy of a look and worthy of potential investment and then worthy of upgrade when they decide to exit that investment. But as Jay noted earlier, in the near term, there are things that could be done to the plant to get very good performance out of it. So I guess my parting thought is, yes, fiber is the focus, but these other technologies are worthy of assessment and, and investment. Wonderful. I think we're just about out of time here. All that is left to say is thank you so much, David Strauss, Principal and Jay Rose, Chief Technology Officer, Broadband Success Partners, for joining us here today at the Five Nine and, and giving us such a an invaluable insight into where we are in, in this broadband space and how much we have to look forward to in the year. Thanks for the dialogue. Our pleasure. Thanks. Wonderful. And to you, our listener as well, thanks for joining us for another week here at the 5.9 podcast. We'll be back in your feed next week with more leading voices of this, our tech industry. Until then, take care and see you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Five Nine, Fierce Telecom's official telecom and technology podcast. Follow us on Zencaster to get the latest ICT insights each week. Get the latest telecom and technology news at our websites, FierceWireless.com, FierceElectronics.com, FierceTelecom.com, and FierceVideo.com. See you soon.